today we're going to be talking about He Got Game from 1998. It's written and directed by Spike Lee and is the story of Jake Shuttlesworth, played by Denzel Washington, who, while serving 15 years in Attica prison for the accidental killing of his wife, is temporarily released and given an opportunity for early parole if he can convince his son, a basketball sensation and number one prospect, to go to the governor's alma mater, Big State University, on a basketball scholarship. It actually makes it sound much more convoluted than it plays out. It's interesting you put the you put the emphasis on Denzel Washington's character on Jake there because it felt to me more like the more like the story of his son Jesus. Yeah, I mean it, it's about their relationship, right? It's a, yeah, you know, the traditional father son film. But I mean, for me, I want to say that this is Spike Lee's kind of flawed masterpiece, but it is also like an incredible Denzel Washington performance. I mean, he's always pretty reliable but for me the nuance of this it blows me away as i'm watching it yeah it's funny it's in watching this it made me realize how how amazing an actor he is which is something you sort of take for granted especially now that he's been around he's been around for almost 30 years and he's just kind of there but you watch this and it's it's funny there was an interview with ethan Hawke in the guardian the other week um, oh yeah okay and he was talking about training day Denzel's Oscar-winning performance. The interviewer flagged up the fact that, you know, isn't it a bit odd that, that your character, the white character, is a saint and all the people of colour in it are evil villains, including Denzel Washington. And and Hawke said quite perceptively, yeah, but you have to understand how amazing it was for, for Washington to allow himself to play that kind of character, to play a villain. Because, you know, yeah. up until that point, he was kind of in the sort of Sidney Poitier principal black gentleman mode. Yeah, sure. Um, that, that Poitier never really got to break out of. That, that Washington was doing something and, and playing something so dark was quite a revelation. But he's doing it not as dark, but he's certainly doing, you know, dark aspects to a character in this four years earlier. Yeah, and I mean, I love the struggle in this character, you know, this idea that he's been kind of in prison and considering all of his bad choices in life and trying to find some redemption and understanding what he's done wrong and what he needs to do to be a better person. But the almost the moment he gets out, he falls back into his old habits and, you know, he hits the source and becomes quite ugly again. And we see him in flashbacks being quite an ugly father. And then we see him in the present day you know just being actually quite an ugly person and him knowing full well that that's his kind of default setting and struggling against that i think it's it's so brilliant to watch you know it's it's yeah i mean he's he's such a great actor i remember um taking a girlfriend at the time to see much do about nothing and like being blown away by him in that on the big screen and just the way he sort of walks in stands opposite like Kenneth Branagh and all the lovies and just like owns that Shakespearean dialogue has that kind of effortless cavalier charm needed of the character you know I've seen that a few times since and he is so good in that like really just proves that you know Americans can do Shakespeare that you know black Americans can do Shakespeare like there shouldn't be any kind of ceiling to who can own Shakespeare so yeah I mean I mentioned in my intro that for me this is Spike Lee's flawed masterpiece it's the kind of first film of his that I sat down and really felt like the message connected like I got it and did you see this before or after do the right thing because that is his unflawed masterpiece one of the greatest American (laughs) films of all time yeah but I didn't get do the right thing the first time I saw it you know I, I watched it and didn't understand really 
the kind of the black rage you know I'm, I'm a white guy in england who you know i've maybe met four or five black people before i moved to london you know in my mid-20s so you know other than what i'd absorbed through popular culture you know little bits of history didn't really get it till i'd matured i think and but for me this was a an easier film to understand you know this very simple betrayal of black people by white people and the exploitation it just it's kind of all there on the surface but not hammered home and i just remember stepping back from it going oh my god i get it now and i think it this informed the other work as i kind of went back through it all and do the right thing i only watched again last year having seen it you know in the in the 90s um and for the first time was just like yes every, every step of that film i was like yes i get it now i get it you know it makes sense did you see this when it came out you saw it in the cinema uh, i didn't see it in the cinema but i did have an all region dvd player right. um, that i'd imported from hong kong just so that i could then import dvds from the states so this was one of the first movies i got from amazon us you know before they sort of clamped down on international dvd imports um and so yeah and I, I probably played it to death to be honest i think just as i was going to film school in fact so yeah it, it, you know it's one of those you know the message resonated that i love his technique in this film the soundtrack i think is just this brilliant balance of classical and you know modern contemporary i just yeah <laughs> i think it's a fantastic film It'd be interesting to talk about spike lee as part of the kind of film landscape from from the late 80s onwards because i never saw this at the time and spike lee is not on my sort of a list of filmmakers that i'll i'll go and see regardless yeah um, sure. but i've seen you know thinking back on it i've seen a fair few of his movies over the years you know a, a good selection of them yeah, yeah um, but it. this is one that, this is one that I solid presence isn't he on the uh, on the landscape yeah but i mean one of the things to talk about maybe is is why it doesn't seem to me that he's up there in the sort of, sort of masterpiece or consistent masterpiece deliverers or or he's not in the a list for people that you're looking forward to is he is he in your a list or i th feel like he kind of dropped off a little bit in the in the noughties because his work was much more um mainstream thrillers and i guess i kind of wanted him to continue being a you know a a champion for the underclass the american black underclass and to keep telling those stories and to keep hammering it home it's a bit of a sidebar um that i mentioned to you a few days ago but i think there's something about american cinema post 9-11 where they're just reluctant to tell those types of stories but you know black american cinema is also about the failing of american society the american dream the the kind of you know all men are created equal land of the free home of the brave because they are neglected you know you see that with like hurricane katrina and i just think after 9-11 hollywood was reluctant to tell stories about the failure of american society to kind of to keep everybody safe do you think that after hurricane katrina you had more of a resurgence of that because it, it feels that way it feels like you know that brought it back into focus yeah, I mean, where you start to get TV shows like The Wire, um, and I think those guys also did a show about Hurricane Katrina Treme, 
and then I think maybe streaming platforms and whatnot. You know, we get Ava DuVernay coming through, and you know, but it just felt. I don't know, like in the 90s, it felt like black American cinema was very much a part of American cinema. It was like very much, you know, sitting in England, you could go to the cinema and see a black American film. Yeah, I remember it was... Alongside, yeah, alongside like a a mainstream American blockbuster. I mean, it it was like a marketable commodity after, you know, Boys in the Hood and... And that sort of thing. It was something that that it was something that could be sold as as a I don't know as a genre I guess. Even though they're they're widely yeah, varied films in terms of you know in style and filmmaking. Yeah, but, but there yeah, was, it felt I, like there was tons of Black American filmmakers as well. You know, like there was. I remember being excited about Carl Franklin and um, who else? The, uh, the Hughes brothers. You know, and going out to see. I went to see dead presidents at a midnight screening and took a girlfriend to a cinema in london to see dead presidents you know i was really excited about that but i did make a list of um you know just things from the 90s black american cinema and i just yeah it's not even something i was conscious of throughout the noughties i wasn't going where is the black american cinema it's only recently when people have been talking about it as a resurgence i didn't uh, oh, I realised that it hadn't been there for so long. Can I jump back to Spike Lee? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's get back on to the uh, the father. Is he? He's not really the father of Black American cinema, is he? But he's the of contemporary. Yeah, yeah, contemporary indie Black American cinema. Well, we say contemporary, but we're we're going back like twenty five. It feels like we're really f- narrowing down his contribution by calling him like the father of indie black. It feels like it, you'd sort of limit. Yeah, it's very much what he's achieved. Putting limits on somebody who is, you know, a, a powerful mainstream talent and has been for for thirty years. But that's yeah. But that's the context that I've always viewed him in as as a powerful mainstream talent because you know I remember the early days. I remember when she's got to have it came out and I'm watching that on video. I, I've still never seen School Days and then Do the Right Thing. Um, didn't get to see it in the cinema because I lived in the north of England and it just didn't get distributed up there but got it on tape the year after. And I was well up for that because I was a huge Public Enemy fan at the time. Oh, yeah, okay. Had been for three years. So that was my gateway into that. And then, you know, from that point on, he's making big mainstream movies, regardless of the fact that they're about black culture or not. They are just big movies that, that are part of mainstream culture for me. So that's that's how I come to him. So, you know, I'm seeing Mo Better Blues and Malcolm X and then... Yeah, yeah, it was a phenomenon, wasn't it, Malcolm X? I haven't seen it for so long, but... That's the thing. I've you know recently had a yen to to see a lot of the Spike Lee movies that that I missed. I haven't seen Crooklyn. Yeah, yeah. I want to see Summer of Sam again, and there's so many ones over the last ten years that I've missed. Um, so I was quite keen to see this. This is my first viewing of He Got Game. Oh yeah, okay. But it it did kind of give me the same feeling that I've always gotten off Spike Lee movies, which is what obviously apart from Do the Right Thing, which is one of my favourite films of all time. They do have this kind of rambling slightly unsatisfying not quite not quite there feeling for me and this is this is another one of those there's this fabulous things in it all the way through and you'd never you know i would never speak ill of it but at the same time it's like nah, not quite yeah I, I i i don't know i think you need to see it again i've, <laughs> I've seen uh, it three times <laughs> this month i know i know <laughs> i know like what just two more times and then it'll, uh, it'll i don't know yeah for me i i find it you know i know what you're saying especially you know the the post 9-11 work 
25th Hour, Inside Man, Old Boy Remake, I find, you know, unsatisfying. But this, I've, I feel it just delivers, you know, by the end, I just get like a, a fully satisfied sensation. Mm. I mean, I can pick holes in it, you know, with any kind of flawed masterpiece. That's why I keep <laughs> ramming that caveat at the front because, you know, there's a couple of you know, really shonky performances and, you know, it, it does kind of ramble here and there. But yeah, you know, I can forgive it, that stuff. Have you seen um, any of Spike Lee's kind of films in the last couple of years, Black Klansman and The Five Bloods? Yeah, I went to see Black Klansman at the cinema. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, and that was the thing that kicked off me wanting to see more Spike Lee movies because again it was one of those things that it was a great story and it had great moments in it but it just didn't hang together as a oh really I thought it was brilliant I thought it it really did hang together Mm. I don't don't know it's just not quite there it's just not quite focused enough for me and and oh my god I I thought that had everything I thought it was so well judged all those kind of spinning plates of kind of tone and character whilst also you know making sure this period piece was contemporary his movies don't have like that kind of effortless flow they feel kind of like episodic to me they feel like sometimes you feel like the drama's moving along and sometimes it can kind of be like rote drama you can feel the wheels grinding to get from a to b and then you feel it stops and it does a little kind of little moments of portraiture or flourish or little stylistic moments and stuff and 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 then it'll move on with the drama so you kind of get these like episodes of these interesting bits amongst these kind of like ebbing bits where it's less interesting and it's just and it doesn't feel like it all comes together sure it feels like there's a lot of stuff in the mix but it's just not quite gelling i definitely got that off black clansman Oh no, I definitely got that off of the Five Bloods, which <laughs> I was kind of so excited for. And I love all those kind of interludes that he does where he's just splicing in documentary footage and some fact checking. You know, I, I love that. I think it's, you know, this idea of, oh, show don't tell and, you know, less is more. I think sometimes that's utter bullshit. Like when there's such an important message to get out to just hammer it home, I think it's, it's really crucial. And I think, it, you know, when he does that, it's really arresting in the middle of the film. Um, but that one I felt like, you know, especially when it gets to the action, it's really kind of <laughs> spinning its wheels and just sort of going through a kind of checklist of coverage and, you know, to get the story moving along. I found The Five Bloods like super disappointing, but Black Klansman, the opposite. I just I was thoroughly satisfied by it. And you've been watching, your household's been watching She's Gotta Have It, haven't you? Uh, my partner has, yeah. She's she loves the TV show, you know. Yeah, I love that too. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I didn't watch it because she. I think I was out, and she'd kind of. By the time I got back, she'd watched like six episodes or something. <laughs> I was completely obsessed with it, so I just had to kind of give her space to get through to the end. And it, it's on my list. I want to go back and watch the original film, and then the show and kind of see how it all threads together i was going to do that but i didn't bother with the original film again i thought i'll just kind of judge you on its own merits i really liked it so much so that i haven't seen the second season because i want to i don't want to like binge it all at once and and have it all flow into one and he directs every episode right yeah wrote and directed and and makes a cameo here and there but the fact that it's you know it's just under 30 minutes an episode and it can be nice nicely contained and just spin out a few ideas and a few different 
themes within that and not have to you know cover two hours plus yeah seems like a real bonus for him it's really really good great and really timely and yeah i'm gonna jump on it so maybe we should talk about the movie itself after our 45 minute rambling <laughs> intro Pre- preamble <laughs> yeah um, plays over we won't do like a scene by scene for me the starting point with a spike lee movie is technique yeah and it's the it's the first thing that grabs you watching this. And I was I was watching it and making notes and making notes of the things that are going on technique wise. And you just you just have to put your pen and paper down eventually because there's so much going on. I know it's an absolute master craftsman, isn't he? And I yeah, think, you know it's it's easy to kind of you know see him firstly as a kind of you know a campaigner for civil rights or human rights or you know black rights and all of that stuff but actually when you step back and just look at the filmmaking like the craft is you know is full full command i love that opening sequence with you know america playing basketball you know this idea that the game is so important to so many people from so many different cultures but then just kind of underpinned with Aaron Copeland's John Henry, it just like says so much about like American history. I think it's oh, so, so good. And then the cross cutting between the father and the son playing with all of their kind of little shared character traits. I just, oh my God, it's so good. And it's like five minutes before anybody even speaks in the film. It just like really sells you in, doesn't it? Really breathes. But then even going into the first interview with, you know, with the, the warden at Attica and Jake, yeah. it kind of all flows in. You've got you've got the amazing stuff going on in the credit sequence. Some of it's kind of a little bit 90s. Uh, you've got you've got a few things in there which are very specifically nineties, like you know the digital, digital graphics and um, yeah, sure, and the grade and you know a few use of use of camera stops and flash frames and things. Yeah, but, but yeah, but that kind of flows into these. He's quite fond of long circling crane shots to establish a location, which are a really yeah. nice indulgence. They go all the way around and then back to back to square one for the action yeah, to yeah. start and then Fantastic. flow into something else. But then you've got all the cross-cutting, as you mentioned. Um, Flash-forwards, cross-cutting between timelines. You've got overlays going on there to impress specific points in the in the yeah, conversation. Yeah. And you've got all this stuff going on, and it's just flowing by. And you're thinking, there's so much effortless technique in this that... Yeah, yeah. You know, and this is, you know, why he's still, like, a major American filmmaker after, uh, say, an erratic output over decades. But it's... You know, the, the stuff that he can do without even thinking about it. You know, it's probably a, an interesting sidebar to mention that his his editor, Barry Brown, is like an English dude from Warrington, isn't he? Who's, <laughs> he's pretty I much... Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he's edited everything, pretty much everything since school days. And yeah, he's just like this kind of English editor that, I don't know, they must have met at film school. I don't know what the history is there, but, you yeah. know, I think he's... I think Spike Lee is quite good at recognizing talent and then just keeping it close, like forever. Mm. I thought you'd have been all over the the editor. I thought that would no, have been no. There's there's you know I was had enough to contend with going through the cast <laughs> list and everything. Yeah, I mean cast. We're talking about the prison superintendent, but that's like Ned Beatty. You know, kind of another great American character actor, great American face. I mean, he's he's perfect for the role for somebody who's kind of quite slippery and uncomfortable in what he has to say and. Ever since like Network, you can you can always cast Ned Beatty as kind of like the uncomfortable face of white America. And I think what feeds into technique. I mean, obviously this is true of a lot of directors, but what feeds into his use of technique is the fact that you know Spike Lee's got this parallel career in advertising, sure. which I think is certainly the thing that pays for his 
amazing houses and incredible lifestyle. Um, <laughs> but you know, with with commercials and a, a and a, a busy sort of commit career in commercials, you can do a lot of experimentation in something yeah, that's yeah. A, a, you know a lot less restricted. Well, he did all of the uh, the. Uh, Michael Jordan Nike stuff through the 90s didn't he that was yeah. that was massive I think for everyone involved yeah I think that's what should we say paid off his mortgage yeah yeah unlike maybe like a movie director who makes one movie every three or four years this is somebody who's constantly experimenting and always has a camera in his hands and is always yeah. trying out new stuff and meeting other people with ideas that that will feed into your filmmaking I like that about Spike Lee you know he's out there and he's constantly doing things you know, he's he's never not making something. Do you see that still in um, She's Got to Have It, the TV show? Is it still kind of pushing oh God, the yeah. technique and the ambition uh, of that? Definitely. There's a lot of kind of experimentation in, in style and structure from, from episode to episode. And there's a lot of kind of non-naturalistic stuff going on in there, which is really good, really fun. Let's talk about, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the scene with Ned Beatty, the prison superintendent offering the potential for early parole if he can get his son to go to the governor's alma mater. That's the kind of thrust of the story. And I, I like the way that it kind of sets this up as a conceit and you're like, okay, right, right. So that's he's got to do this, do that with his son and then he's going to get early release. And then <laughs> Ned Beatty's like, okay, so to get you out of prison, we're going to drug you <laughs> and then sneak you out the back door. And it's like, nope, nope, that's, <laughs> this doesn't sound <laughs> like it's going to this doesn't sound legit to me it just doesn't doesn't ring true and you sort of have that doubt all the way through that you know jake is going to get screwed over and mm. you know lo and behold the bookend scenes with ned Beatty. yeah he's you know they they don't they arrest him for a prison a prison break and you know that's it he's going to get longer in prison it's just a massive stitch up yeah, and they also finesse it that, oh, well, you didn't actually convince your son to do it. Your son didn't do it on the moment and sign whilst uh, yeah, you were in the room with him. So He didn't sign the piece of paper we gave you. He like, just made the decision, didn't he? Yes, it's terrible, that. I think. But the, the whole this whole central premise of the film, because I went down a bit of a rabbit hole yesterday and probably not, not far enough to get the full picture, but... You know, Spike Lee has a long history with basketball, even before he made yeah, this yeah, movie. Yeah. He's a huge Knicks fan, always has, you know, courtside yeah, sure, seats. Sure. But he um, appeared in Hoop Dreams, which I haven't seen, the, you know, the famous oh, basketball yeah, okay, documentary. The basketball. Yeah, and he's, yeah, sure. you know, he's pictured there saying, you know, the saying to the young players in that, you know, the only reason that these people are interested in you, they don't care about you as a person. Um, yeah, yeah. They're a commodity. Yeah, you're a commodity. You are here because you can make money for the team. Yeah, that's it. And the conceit of this movie, you know, which you kind of miss miss if you blink, is that everything, kind of like social justice, the fact that you can let a convicted murderer out of yeah, prison yeah, for a week in the service of a, a basketball-based whim, um, yeah, yeah. everything is subservient to this kind of... this m basketball machine, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And, th I mean, there's something about that as a subtext, this idea, like... Black sportsmen, black musicians, even black actors, you know, they're only kind of useful if you're making money. You know, it's not the same as the kind of the tradition of the the white actor and theatre and all of these things. It just feels like this film is saying, you know, we have to be aware that we're only allowed to succeed because we're making money for other people. There's that great stuff with the um, the agent in this film, uh, is it Don Pagnotti? Yeah. When they, when they go to his house and he's just like, look, 
he's surrounded by Ferraris and Lamborghinis and he just says to Jesus, he says, you know, you're black, I'm white, and this is green, and just holds up like a wad of cash, doesn't he? He's like, mm. this is it, this is this is America, like this green is all that matters. I've got a little bit about that guy, because he's such a weird uh, presence in the film, isn't he? He has this sort of odd kind of authentic and terrifying presence. I was like, who the hell is that guy? Like, I haven't really seen him in, in I just much just, else. I just assumed on watching it that he was, because there's so many cameos from basketball people in this, I thought, yeah, well, yeah. maybe he really is like a basketball manager and they just got him in to do this. <laughs> no, but well, It's a but... performance and it's amazing. I'm the best at what I do. I'm a sports agent. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but several NBA teams are interested in you right now. At this point in time, I can't tell you who, but I will tell you they are contenders. Now, I know you consider jumping straight to the pros. The money is there. I have the contacts, so apply for the NBA draft now. Right here, Jesus, is a contract. This makes me your agent. This allows me to represent you. I will take you to the top. I can't do that right now. I still have to weigh my options. How much does your watch cost? $89.95. $89.95. Right here is a platinum and diamond Rolex. The best you can buy. Gold, forget about it. Silver, forget about it. You have platinum and diamonds. That's like having speed and power in the NBA. And Jesus, that watch is a gift from Don Pagnotti to you. Keep it. Oh, I'll bet you there's strings attached too, huh? There's no strings. There's no rubber bands. There's nothing attached at all. That's a $36,000 watch. That's like having a Corvette on your wrist. You keep that. I can't take this. Why not? It's illegal. I can't take it. I don't see anyone here. Just me and you. There's nobody here, but it's still you know, illegal. You know what, Jesus? I'll keep it. The money you and I are going to make together, you could buy 20 of them if you want. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but that guy, his name is Al Palagonia, and he's also known as the Bucket Shop King. And in the early 90s, he worked at D.H. Blair, a now infamous boiler room. And apparently he took home a million dollars in his first year of business and eventually was making a million dollars a month. And when um, D.H. Blair was shut down by the regulators in 1997, Palagonia had his license stripped and was barred from the securities industry. Um, and his friendship with Spike Lee comes from uh, when Palagonia got Spike Lee his first courtside seats for the Knicks at Madison Square Gardens. And they've been friends ever since. <laughs> um and Palagonia eventually got into the private plane business. So he's now one of the leading jet brokers in the world, catering to athletes and celebrities. But Spike Lee just keeps putting him in little cameo roles in, in his films. So I think they've just got this sort of long friendship now, you know. And I think Palagonia seems to be one of those guys like the character who just says what he's how he sees the world and you know what things are valued and why they're valued and i think he's probably very straight talking that's fantastic i didn't research him i kind of looked him up and saw that he was in all of spike lee's movies pretty much so i just assumed yeah, you know some, some does, theatrical actor who spike lee was fond of from new york theater yeah. or something but no he's a wolf no, of wall it's street the dude, it's the dude who got him the front row seats for the knicks so that's it that's a guaranteed lifelong friendship <laughs> But he's great, isn't he, in that scene? You know, it's, re it's really kind of, yeah, just magnetic. You know, this, like, 
my success is based on my ability to exploit you and this situation. He's so so honest about it. I mean, he's, there's there's a whole string of amazing kind of standout sidebar scenes for performances in this, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, um, Roger Gwenvis Smith as Big Time Willie. Yeah, yeah. Who initially pulls up and seems like like a, a tiresome passing character, but then he gets that long extended yeah. scene. You know, so good that monologue. Yeah. Oh my god. I even made a note of some of the lines. Yeah. So I I wrote down that big time is a street prophet, and he's talking about the drugs and the, you know all the things you have to avoid. You know the drugs, the booze, the pussy, and he's like, <laughs> "What's it you saying? Come on in, Jesus. Just a little taste. How you gonna be immune to that shit? You're so good. All that titty up in your face. All that good ass." How you gonna be immune to that thigh? All those lips, all those hips, all those honey dips. <laughs> Come on, man, be real. That shit will fuck a nigga up quick. Deadly combination, you know what I'm saying? And I didn't even mention the blood-sucking leeches. Oh, yeah. The newfound family pygmy buzzards be hovering over you trying to get that loose change, you know what I'm saying? Huh? They talking about I love you. Oh, I love you. I love you. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you. No, I love you. I love you. Te amo. Jesus, te amo. Ay, que fiebre. Come on, man. <laughs> need some money. I love you so much. I need some money. Hook a brother up. Give me some money. I need some cash. I'm gonna get these Nikes. You know I can't have anything but the best. This hell figure sweater. But you want me looking good for you? I need some money. I love you. <laughs> Hook a sister up. I need some money. I need some Cinnamonite for my baby. I need some Pampers for my baby. I need some Dolce Cabana for me. I need some Channel. I need some Fendi. Come on. All of the kind of vignettes underneath that, you know, those kind of visual representations of what he's talking about. You know, I, I love how kind of crystal clear that is about how most of the options for people from that community are bleak. And it's just very kind of raw and honest about that. But you got all these um, like colourful characters who kind of pop up and they're like a weird sort of Greek chorus throughout the film, like advising yeah. you on, on all the kind of like pitfalls and, and trials ahead of you in your, in your basketball yeah, but career. You just feel for Jesus, don't you? You know, that everybody wants a piece of him. You know, there isn't anybody that's kind of benign in his life apart from his sister. And even, you know, she's only a, a little kid, but, she, you know, she's getting kind of excited about his money-making potential as much as anyone else because obviously they live in in poverty so this idea that they're going to be very rich very soon because of her brother you know you can see it's even kind of you know captured her imagination so what about ray allen ray allen yeah interesting performance isn't it it's sort of naturalistic and engaging but also sometimes quite painful i quite liked it i i had to go through several several levels of acceptance for it because initially you know it's clear he's a non-professional. Yeah. And even without knowing the backstory, you you know from when he starts speaking, okay, this this is a basketball player rather than a professional actor. Sure. So that's initially quite difficult. But then I kind of settled into my, I think I said it last time around when we were talking about Martin, there's things that you can get from a non-professional actor. Yeah, yeah. Accidentally that you can that you can't get from a professional actor or that you can't get from a professional actor without a lot of work and a lot of takes. Yeah, sure. And I think there's a lot of that to be said for Ray Allen in this. And once you settle into it, it, it really works for me. I do like the fact that he's kind of a... a how can I put it? Um, he's a slightly... He has a slightly kind of flat monotone effect. Um, but that contrasts really nicely with like the ferocity of Denzel Washington and all, the, all of these it. other kind of colourful characters around him. 
Yeah, you get away with it. His kind of um, remaining in neutral is a, just a coping mechanism, I think, to, you know, he's trying to, like, counterpoint the histrionics of his f- drunken father. You know, last time he saw him, you know, before he gets released from prison, he's kind of drunk and shouting at him and like being really beastly and you can imagine the effect of that on a child where he's just like you know what fuck this man i'm just like i'm not letting anybody get getting close enough to like upset me like that again but it works really well in terms of the character because what's what's interesting about jesus is that this isn't a story about him being gradually disappointed by the people around him you know no he's solid isn't yeah, he all the way through he already knows from the beginning of the movie that these people are in the process of disappointing him yeah yeah it's not it's not it's a revelation for us all the way through but not for him he knows yeah, yeah. from the beginning yeah he's and, got it isn't and, he? yeah, yeah that's true he's he's twigged it from the very beginning of the movie so you know, the fact that he remains in the same sort of gear throughout is is quite a, a, a solid dramatic backbone for it. Yeah, yeah. There's a nice, that scene where his dad turns up and you could just see in his face, he's like, fucking hell, now this as well, like on top of everyone else wanting a piece of me, like now this guy's suddenly, you know, magicked out of prison. The, the scene that sort of I find most annoying for him as a non-actor is the um, scene towards the end where he's with Lala and... Uh, Rosario Dawson and that it feels like one of those scenes where they've run out of time and they just improvise dialogue for ages and the camera's on a steady cam just going like left to right right to left and they keep cutting between it as as they're sort of searching for the point of it and it, that was always the scene that it bothers me that it's in there but there's so much necessary information like you, the sympathy for Lala who's kind of his girlfriend who's been trying to get him to sign to an agent so that her other boyfriend can get a, a percentage and she can get a payout. And there's a really nice line towards the end where she's just like, look, you're set for life. Okay, I've got nothing. I live, I'm going to be poor forever. This is just like, a. why shouldn't I get paid too? Why shouldn't I just get a little slice of it? And you do kind of get how desperate people are. Is that, I mean, that's not, Ray Allen's fault. I I feel that there's points in the movie where scenes play out far longer than they need to. Let's say this the second flashback, Jesus is talking to Jake and you get a flashback too. And it's a really nicely queued up flashback where he says, Do you remember your mother used to call from you up there? Yeah, and yeah. You hear his mother lovely. calling. The 80s flashback is so cool. Right? When you get um say that and then you can hear his mother calling and, and it's I think it's a shot of Denzel Washington of, of Jake looking up. Yeah. And then you go into the flashback, but then the flashback just kind of goes on. Like long, long scenes of the kids playing together. I know it's one of those things, but it does look beautiful. You know, they're all kind of eighties, and those young kids are brilliant as well. You know, and you have all the other kids going, "Jesus, come in, Jesus!" You know, I I think that all of that stuff is is so funny, it's so charming and time capsule. But the cumulative effect is that extra ten, fifteen minutes on the movie that makes it feel slightly flabby. Yeah, sure. And that that was another one of those for me. I just think you you could do another quick pass and winnow out a few more minutes and you'd have a, a lot more punchy movie. Oh yeah, okay. It's worth talking about, maybe we should do it now, we're talking about the two characters. It's really nice that in and amongst all these characters in his life, all these people in his life who are interested basically in the money, hmm. his father turns up and he wants something from it. 
but it isn't the money and it isn't the fame. You know, at the end of the day, he's not pushing him into professional basketball yeah. the way that everyone else is. But he did that when he was a child, though. Like, he nailed him on the court, like, every day. You know? Yeah, but I think at the end of the day, what maybe persuades Jesus to actually sign up for the school that his father wants him or needs him to sign up for is the fact that they find a common ground in the fact that, you know, even though Jake has other has other motives they both want the same thing you know he, he's not trying to extort money from him or extort a piece of his future professional career he just wants this one thing which at the end of the day is what what jesus wants as well he wants to go to a school and play at a school rather than play professionally and i think uh, you know i know jake wants something from jesus but it's it's not about money yeah because they talk about you know your mother wanted you to go to college and get uh, an education you know that's still kind of part of the plan isn't it and it seems like he's fairly smart you know like he will get a decent education as well as being like a basketball sensation rosario dawson rosario dawson is one of those super talented actors that i always feel guilty about my subconscious objectifying because she's so beautiful as well and looks so good on screen and I always think like oh wow she's so and I'm like no she's just really quality and uh, you shouldn't even be like diminishing her contribution to cinema by thinking how lovely she looks but I I can't help it sometimes (laughs) like she's she's got such a like beautiful charm on screen hasn't she I was quite startled looking back over her filmography that this is only her second film and that her first film was Kids I mean, I haven't seen kids since late 90s. Mm. I remember her from kids, but she must have grown like five years in between in those two years between them. Because she looks like a little Indian child in kids. Yeah, sure. And in this, she's like a fully grown, mature woman. It's bizarre. Yeah, gro- growth spurt. Yeah, yeah, there's only two years difference between the two movies. And I didn't realise she'd been making films that long. I mean, she's kind of... I haven't followed her career, but, you know, when she turns up, she's great, but... Yeah, she's been around forever, though, it feels like. Yeah. I loved her in Alexander, the Oliver Stone movie, which is is one of my kind of, like, pub films where if I start ranting about Alexander, I'll talk for hours <laughs> about how good it is and how everyone should watch it, and most people that call my bluff on that hate it, so... Yeah. Um, and then obviously, I think she's a bit of a nerd as well because she does quite a lot of comic stuff willingly. You know, she's all over the Netflix Marvel stuff yeah. and Sin City. That's why you love her. That's all the stuff that I like and read. So <laughs> It's worth talking, I think, about there's a fairly uh, polarised view of women in this film. Um, yeah, the, um, it's, it's it's kind of weakness, really, I think. I think the, so, yeah. Is the female characters? It, you've it's, either got it's frustrating. Kind of, you've yeah. you've got the saintly mother figure who literally is saintly and speaks to him from heaven at, at various yeah. points, and then it's basically kind of whoreish women, really, isn't it? It's yeah. Uh, apart from uh, Aunt Aunt Sally, <laughs> who delivers the the worst performance, I think in in almost any film <laughs> ever. Yeah, well, she, she only is, gets one she, scene there, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, but she's pretty terrible in it. Yeah, it's very, very strange indeed. There's, there's, there's the visit to a campus, a prospective school that that Jesus might attend. You know, he's shown round by one of the basketball players on the team. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you're introduced to all these kind of like willing, willing white women who are kind of like the groupies to the basketball players. 
And yeah, the, he the, says to, he says to him, doesn't he? Like they'll cook for you, they'll clean for you, they'll lend you their Mercedes. But it's a really weird scene because it's quite demeaning what he says about them. But the women that you meet seem quite bright, and they seem to have their own agency, and they all seem to be, you know, in it because they like it. Yeah, sure. But then when Jesus, you know, is is given a sweetener to try and persuade him to come to the college, like the two women that he's given basically look like porn actresses. They are porn actresses. But it's really strange. You kind of introduce these women who are groupies who look like, like yeah, normal yeah. college-age women, and you think, oh, okay, I can, I can understand yeah. that. I want, I want some nice white middle-class women. Why are you giving me these uh, Well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's just like, okay, um, it's, it's really kind of like lowest common denominator. Okay, so you really, these women really are kind of like almost prostitutes. It's mm. very, very odd. And there's a, yeah, there's a weird sort of women as prostitutes theme running through it. Obviously, Lola's character is doing it for her payout at the end. And this leads us on neatly to what must surely be the weakest part of the movie, and it's Mila Jovovich's character. Yeah, it's a shame. I can kind of see what he was going for with that, but I think, you know, and, and actually, I think she's pretty good she's, in the she's role. She's okay, but God, she's not given anything to work with. Exactly, yeah. But I think what she does do is kind of present a character that looks the part, but doesn't have the kind of cliched femininity. Like, she has quite a sort of awkward masculine physicality, which I, I think was I've just found was like really interesting and just gave it something more. You know, she wasn't one of those Monroe sexy kind of siren types. She was quite a tight like coiled anxious character and i thought that was quite a nice way of doing it uh, this is this is 1997 98 and that's when mila jovovich was at the height of her fame but she'd just done the fifth element and this was before joan of arc i remember i remember a sudden career arc because i I remember seeing Dazed and Confused, which I think was a which we just watched. Oh again. yeah, yeah. Watched that again the other week. Oh, yeah, um, how was it? It's really good. It's quite yeah. strange seeing Anthony Rapp in it, who's an actor who's in Star Trek Discovery now, who was the guy who who nailed Kevin Spacey. Right. <laughs> he was the guy who launched the whole thing. He said, "I remember when I was fourteen, I met Kevin Spacey in a nightclub and went back to his apartment, and he." tried to get off with me and that was the thing that launched the whole Kevin oh, Spacey that was thing. Him. Oh, yeah, and he's in Dazed and Confused and I didn't know him at the time. But yeah, sorry. She was her first movie was Dazed and Confused and then straight after that it was like the fifth element and yeah, as you say, Joan of Arc. So I have a nasty feeling that it was somebody that he kind of had to cast, you know, to to get some some audience appeal. Like I it just doesn't feel like a decent character. This kind yeah, of, I mean, I know that she's a troubled person, but, and she's not, you know, the usual siren, as you say, but at the same time, it's, 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 it's pretty crappy and pretty generic, you know, that the kind of, the white hooker who gets slapped around by her weird, sleazy, stereotypical pimp boyfriend. Sweetness, his name is, isn't it? Her whole arc is just like a list of stereotypes character decisions you know the fact that, oh, that yeah. she falls for 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 jake and then there's that terrible line all the meters off and then at the end of the movie for some inexplicable reason she's changed her ways and she's she's on a coach back to whatever midwest yeah. town she came from for no apparent reason it's just yeah, that's it. why why is this in here yeah that's it. it doesn't feel that thought out and it, to the point where the scenes where they're together 
you know, her room is quite kind of stylized, black walls, and obviously he's just come off the basketball court. So there's a scene where he walks in in like his shorts and vest, and he looks so out of place in this kind of stylized womb-like cocoon. Mm. It's a very strange kind of contrast. Yeah, for me, that was the stuff that didn't quite work. And then you've got, you know, a whole host of other character turns by Bill Nunn as Uncle Bubba, who's yeah. weird bit it's of casting. He's a- it's not his best performance, is it? No, and he's aged up unconvincingly. You know, he's he's yeah. f- at least 15 years too young for the character, and they've kind of greyed his hair a bit. And But at the same yeah. time, he's, he's quite a youthful, energetic actor, so it, it doesn't play that yeah. well. Um, John Turturro. Yeah, I liked his cameo. I thought that was that was quite nice, and I love that they used um, Copeland's fanfare for the common man <laughs> for Jesus's uh, you know promo film that they they project up there in the the basketball court. I, I really like that. You know, he's like, I believe in Jesus. I think he's really good. It doesn't look so comfortable in a tracksuit, I must say. Should we talk about the music? So it's Aaron Copeland, a little bit from Appalachian Spring, which I only know a bit of myself. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me listening to it, seeing the movie for the first time, was how how similar in tone it was to um, the composed music that Spike Lee's father wrote for um, "Do the Right Thing." It's in the same kind of broad lyrical Americana kind of feel. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I hadn't drawn that comparison, but yeah. So it's kind of like a fifty-fifty mix of Aaron Copeland and then um, Public Enemy at their worst. Yeah. I th- I think. Uh, yeah, but I think it. Oh, I don't know about at their worst. I love the um, the he got game theme where they're sampling for what it's worth. I like. I love that <laughs> that that tune. It's like a you know put it on a cassette in your car summer's evening. You know, feels like because that's what Public something. Enemy are all about, isn't it? <laughs> no, but that tune is. Uh, I don't know. I've I've got in my notes. I've just put asterisk rant here. So here we go. <laughs> okay. No, it's just that Public Enemy properly ran out of steam. And I say this as somebody for whom their early work, like 87 to 91, is still some of the my favourite music of all time. All right, okay. But they dropped off so badly after that. And I think this was their first album release in four years. And I remember that single, He Got Game, being getting a lot of airplay and hating it at the time and then <laughs> it might have been one of the reasons I didn't see the movie at the time what made their music fabulous was the music and the production sure. and once I think they lost two things they lost their original production team which is fine because the one album they did after that Apocalypse 91 is a slightly different production team but it's still pretty fierce but then since then they had they also um had a real knife in the back in that the copyright laws became a lot more solidified in the early 90s so you couldn't just plunder sample after sample the way that you used to which is what their earlier music was was pretty much based around so they had to have like live musicians in and and slightly feebler samples but basically you get to sort of 98 where public enemy are basically kind of rhetoric with weak music underneath (laughs) and they've kind of stayed there since (laughs) And this, you know, I remember this single, and by coincidence, I, I picked up this album in a charity shop last year. You know, I thought, I'll give it a go for a quid. And it was so feeble and so lukewarm. 
and it's just kind of public enemy there because they're public enemy. So that that adds nothing to the movie for me. The public enemy presence. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. I, c- I can't really. Uh, so top that. Yeah, I can't. I can't. I only need to say that I love uh, Aaron Copeland's music in the film. Yeah. I think that that's a really lovely contrast. When that first time we see Jesus on the court and um, he drops, uh, uh, Spike Lee drops hoe down from Rodeo over the visuals, man, I think that works so well. It's absolutely beautiful. You get this kind of music that's about cowboys relaxing at the end of the day, you know, having kind of worked the play, the big American planes and eating chili beans and all those kind of pictures that you have in your mind this ballet was supposed to kind of represent you put that music with these kind of black urban teenagers dancing on the court slamming the ball into the basket I don't even know anything about basketball and it makes me love the sport you know and and understand that it is kind of a great American invention you know in terms of like Oh, the landscape of s- athletes and sports, you know, and I don't really know much about <laughs> sports or athletes, but this film, this moment makes me love it. You know? Spike Lee's really interesting in his use of music, in uh, not necessarily talking about like, you know, like pop music or needle drops or stuff like that, but even composed music, using it. They're, they're educated choices, I think. You know, they're inspired and educated, and I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, but it's the actual use within a scene that's interesting, because there's a lot of times, even, you know, I'm constantly going back to do the right thing. That has a very kind of, like, energetic, powerful score. Yeah, that's, f- and that's I think fantastic. What we're used to a lot of the time um, is, you know, the fact that the score has to support the drama, um, and has to work very closely hand in hand with it to the point where, you know, it's often Mickey Mousing it, you know, and things will drop off where you need to concentrate on the dialogue and stuff. And Sp- Spike Lee often doesn't do that. He allows the music just to play out underneath scenes. Oh, yeah, okay. Whether or not on paper it works with the mood of, of the scene line by line or, or dramatic turn by dramatic turn. And you often get like, you know, you can be uneasy about it and you can think, yeah, this isn't quite matching up to it dramatically, but... The, the kind of synergy of the two gives it something else. Yeah, sure, sure. And I think there's a lot of that in this, you know, where the music is obviously not composed for the film and it's following its own yeah. dramatic turns, but it's running up underneath a scene that's doing something else or is, you know, thematically they're similar, but dramatically they're doing slightly different things. And then there's just this weird sort of energy from the two. There's only there's only one place in the movie where I felt it didn't work and that was, you know, the flashback of Jesus's mother dying where I thought it might have been more more interesting to drop the music out altogether at that point just sure. to absolutely nail how deathly it was Mm-mm. but there's yeah there's that really interesting thing that that lee does of, of just running the two things concurrently and just letting them do that and see what comes from the sparks of that yeah yeah i'm really into yeah, that great. from his movies shall we talk about the backbone of the film which is jake and jesus's father-son relationship i mean one thing I, I love all the way through this is seeing how they share mannerisms. That's I mentioned it before, but I, I just I love the their kind of the way they rub their noses and the way their wrist flick when they throw the ball. And you know, there's just so many like shared characteristics that uh, it feels really authentic as a father son relationship. And there is that thing about Jesus counterpointing. Jake in terms of his personality as well how calm and measured he, he is compared to his father's kind of crazed you know unpredictability I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as kind of 
crazed un- unpredictability because he is one of the shocking things about the film is that you know you're introduced to Jake as somebody who's found like a, a measure of inner calm and certainly sure. certainly the, the way that he deals with all the constant kind of um but it's a facade isn't it you know that's not but you don't you know, realize he, that until until no, later no, in but the that's, film that's that's you know the enlightened <laughs> thing of having seen it a few times you know when you watch it again knowing that he's put up this I don't know if it's a facade. Yeah, maybe you're right. It's kind of um, there's a idealized version of himself that he's trying to be, but his you know his impulses and instincts override that. And even after he served you know I don't know half his sentence in prison, within a day or two of getting out, he's kind of he's got the taste for the booze and the edges back and he you know that there's a scene where he bumps into his nephew and he's drunk and he's trying to get him to drink from the bottle and you're just like oh jake you fucking horrible bastard like you monster you know well, that's he the is thing is it's, it's easy to maintain this kind of disciplined self-image in a in a very very limited set you've of got circumstances no choice. and stimulus yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then once you're out into the real world and suddenly you've got you know a lot more decisions and a lot more choices you can make that's that's that kind of goes doesn't it yeah of course and you know it's overwhelming to be free you know i think one thing about leaving the military and becoming a civilian you know it's such a an overwhelming transition and i think that must be much more amplified coming out of prison where Mm. you know you have structure and you know know, i've never been to prison but you know you have nothing but structure Mm. yeah of course you know i'm sure it's kind of it's a tough life as well but you know it's still routine and ritual and you know to lose all of that you can see he kind of spins out quite quickly he batters, uh, he doesn't batter, but he knocks um, Lala's other boyfriend to the ground, doesn't he? And like this, st- you know, sucker punch, street sucker punch. And then you can see like the, the, and this is like Denzel all the way through these moments of kind of spontaneous kind of liberation. And then like the crushing reality of how much trouble he could be in if he gets busted. And you see him just like turn on his heels and run off down the road like somebody just running from the scene of the crime. You know, there's all of those little moments throughout where you can see the conflict across the character's face, which is all down to that performance. That's the moment really where he kind of like, I don't mean his performance, like like Jake as a character cuts loose. And it's it's really cleverly done in that initially you're given something which is quite satisfying, that kind of crowd-pleasing moment where the smart yeah, ass yeah. just gets decked with one punch. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm phrasing it like that way because that's how sat- that's how it feels as yeah, a satisfying, yeah, yeah. dramatic moment. But then from that point, that's where he spins out and you realise, ah, this is this is not good. This isn't, you know, this isn't yeah, crowd-pleasing. Yeah. This is This is real genuine darkness and... He's not a not a good person at heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's other little moments. I love when um, the parole officers drop him off at his kind of flop house, and as they're taking him out of the car, you can see his eyes like his eyes are darting all over the place, like drinking in <laughs> kind of freedom, and he's licking his lips in anticipation. And then when they're putting the tag on his ankle, and he's just like wants them out of the house so he can get out there and be like part of it. You know, mm. there's there's all of that kind of threat and anticipation f- from the performance. I, I just think it's, it's such a, you know, I think maybe even clouds my judgment on the quality of the film, just the quality of that performance. And it's quite interesting seeing jesus who's i think as a performance it's like a, 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 i wouldn't i wouldn't say inert but it's a fairly kind of 
steady rock solid performance throughout yeah. but it's really yeah. nicely modulated in the in that you know as the film goes on and as as jake kind of keeps pestering him he, he does kind of get more and more mean and more spiteful and and starts to bite back and 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 you know yeah. really sort of snap back at him a bit well that's the nice way that the film is layered where we see jake coaching the young jesus on the court and how he kind of is unrelenting in trying to discipline the boy and make him focus. And uh, again, another great moment is him losing his patience with his child and being like really mean and spiteful, you know, and as a parent, I definitely get that kind of, you know, you don't often see it in films, but that reality of just like, oh, these fucking kids, man. And when he's so angry with him after he's ditched the ball and he comes up in the house fuming and he's like, you're not leaving the table to you. You just find those little kind of like uh, ways to try and rebalance the, you know, the, 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 who's the alpha in the house, you know, <laughs> when you're dealing with like seven, eight, nine year olds, you know, they, they can be, you know, really challenging and they've got their eye on the throne already so you definitely <laughs> feel like I, th I just love that sort of raging resentment that he has towards his own child I don't I mean I don't love it I love seeing it because it, it's so genuine and not mm. something that you often see in a film and I think that it sets us up nicely for um, the kind of final confrontation on the basketball court we've seen um, that you know Jake's a fairly decent basketball player <laughs> he still feels like he's got a chance to beat his son i love that sort of confidence of yeah it, where his, he's already his pretty the much number one prospect <laughs> yeah there's a special on espn about his son and he still f fancies his chances of being him on the court mm -hmm. um and i did read a little kind of behind the scenes thing about this that apparently the scene was written that um Jesus would just score like 10 or 12 points straight out and Jake wouldn't get any. Um, but apparently Denzel is fairly decent on the court and slammed three or four baskets in and the crew were cheering him on, you know. <laughs> and I th it pissed off Ray Allen so much that he then just nailed every single ball after that. It was just like, fuck you, man. I'm the best basketball <laughs> player on this court. So how do you feel about the end of their arc then? How do you feel about the resolution? Well, I think, you know, obviously he's never going to beat Jesus on the court, at, not at this point, you know, and some of the lessons, I think that that's a nice thing that some of the lessons that Jake was trying to teach him, no matter how bad a teacher he was, have sunk in, you know, we see that with the kind of wrist flick and all the other little, you know, gameplay that he's picked up from his father, but also he's transcended his father, you know, he's, and, you know, I think there's that point where he knocks his father on his ass and he's like, don't get angry. He's repeating back all the kind of things that mm. his father had said to him. So those resentments, he's able to kind of satisfy that sort of cause and effect. You know, he's able to pay it off and, and move on. Yeah, he's, enjoy he's also enjoying the kind of the the balance of power that's switched over now. He's allowed to kind of be the, the authority figure or the, the... Yeah, yeah, that's where he's superior, isn't he? Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's the thing. I've, I've been teaching my eldest chess for a year or two and you know, my partner's like, why don't you let him win? Why don't you let him win? And a friend of mine had always said that his father, when he taught him chess like beasted him and would never let him win until and a couple of people have said this until the point where they won naturally and then beat their dads to the point where dads have said like i don't want to play anymore <laughs> and have <laughs> packed the chess chessboard away and i think this scene has that kind of triumph you know of superseding 
and stepping out from the shadow of your father, you know, and, and becoming your own man. And that's how, how he's able, I think, to make peace with Jake's, you know, overarching presence in his life by actually just understanding himself that he's able to move on from that. And, mm. and yeah, to, and he is a better man. You know, he, he has a kindness that his father doesn't have. You know, it's, yeah, I, th I think he's, I think it's it's necessary, and I think there's something really nice. The film starts with that sequence of us cross-cutting between Jake and Jesus and ends the same way with them both on courts. Well, we get that um, scene of Jake launching the basketball over the walls of the prison, and it lands in the uh, the court where Jesus is playing. And I think, you know, that's the sort of symbolic representation of the stuff I was just saying. But also it ties in nicely with the sequences that we had cross-cutting at the beginning mm. and also the scene in the middle where Jesus ditches his dad's ball over the, the fence of the court as well. I think it, it kind of all wraps up really nicely and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about feeling like really satisfied by how the, how the film ties up. You know, deeply frustrated that Jake has been screwed over by the system, but yeah. I didn't realise when you when you chose this that this is something that you were very very fond of, um, which is probably yeah. good because it didn't colour the way that I watched it at all. I thought it was just you know an interesting movie that you'd selected. How so do you feel about it now, having sort of watched it a couple of times and had me sort of rambling on about it? Um, it's weird because I've I've had this yearning to watch not only the, the Spike Lee movies that I've seen already but to catch up on some of the ones that I quite fancy that I've missed you know I never saw Crooklyn um, and there's, there's a few others that's that Harvey Keitel isn't it yeah oh, no, I, Clockers no Clockers is Harvey Keitel yeah I saw Clockers at the at the cinema and again but all of these movies that I've seen have left me obviously apart from you know the one that I won't mention again have left me feeling sort of vaguely unsatisfied you know like entertained from start to finish but and this one was again like that it was it was a very good example of it um but it's kind of lit a fire under me a bit more to to watch more of his work sure. and to to catch up on the ones that i've forgotten or missed would you recommend it to other people who are kind of entering a spike lee phase i mean this is the thing like we were in our mid-20s and now we're in our mid-40s talking about this movie what about you know younger people looking at black american cinema yeah from absolutely the, the 1990s like it's str I think it's really strong. Yeah, I think I think his movies have got like a freshness and an energy that 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 makes them pretty timeless. I mean, this is something from what twenty two years ago. Yeah, and it still feels pretty contemporary in terms of exactly. filmmaking and everything. Yeah, There's yeah, a few sort of few telltale nineties stylistic touches here and there. Yeah, um, and the representation of women is not not uh, not ideal. In yeah. I don't know, it's difficult for me to be too enthusiastic about something that, that didn't hit home 100% for me. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. But in those in those circumstances, if somebody said, you know, what would you say was a good Spike Lee movie? I'd say, you know, obviously, do the right thing, and then there'd be another four entries, which would include this one. <laughs> okay, that's good, that's good. Well, no, for me, I think, like I said right at the beginning, it was the first, kind of, first time I'd really got the... Uh, I mean, it's very broad, but the sort of the point of some black American cinema is to state quite clearly that, you know, black Americans are exploited and neglected 
by a society that they contribute so much to. And I think this film just said that really clearly. You know, yes, it's a great character piece about a father and a son. And yes, it's a masterful piece of cinema with brilliant technique and, you know, handcrafted and, you know, really kind of engaging in its technique. But still that message, you know, it's it's crystallized so clearly in it that I just think it's a, 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 like I say his flawed masterpiece and a really important piece of American cinema made by a black filmmaker. <laughs> 